God is sovereign. God is in control. But also uh, pointing out that that chapter 3, verse 11 uh, is, is really important. He has put eternity into man's heart. He has put eternity into man's heart. We're going to look in chapter 4 at some sides of the world. Remember, what Solomon is doing here is he's, he's looking at the world uh, and, and he's going to have a, a phrase that's frequently seen, under the sun, meaning the world. It's, it, it's excluding people in the sense that they're not looking at God or for God. They're, they're just living their lives out. And uh, the different things that he would see, and, and you'll notice it, it says here in, in chapter 4, it starts off with, again, I saw. So that picture of he's looking at the world, he's, he's seeing the things as he has seen all through his life. He's an elderly person at this time writing this. And so all the things that he has seen in the world that are corrupt and wrong and missing the mark of, and, and, and the holiness of God, he's uh, looking at it and he calls it uh, a, you know, as, as a striving after uh, the wind or striving after wind. And the idea of that striving after wind is, is trying to grab a hold of the wind. The word vanity is, is also used. It's all vanity is like trying to uh, grab the smoke of a fire. It's, you can't do it. It's worthless. It, it has no point in trying to do it. Well, the same thing of trying to grasp the wind. Uh, the last couple of days, if you've been outside and tried, uh, you'll find out how successful you can be. And uh, that what he's looking at is to say that, that most of what we're putting forth in, in our efforts are more focused on the world and worldly things than on godly things. And, and that all of the, the worldly things that we achieve and do and strive for uh, are basically vanity. They, they have no real value to us. It's like trying to grasp a hold of the wind. And when it's all said and done, what's going to happen at the, the, at, when it's all said and done and, and, and we're looking at the end of life, what happens? We die. And that's an important thing to state in reference to what Ecclesiastes, what Solomon is writing about here is the reality. We die. And none of this stuff goes with us. What goes with us is what we have done in relationship with God. And he hasn't got into that real clearly yet. But he will ultimately get there. And so right now all he's doing is pointing out the condition of a, of a fallen world under the sun and looking at it and seeing the different things about it and warning us not to fall into these traps uh, as well. If you went through Proverbs, several of the things that are mentioned here in Ecclesiastes are mentioned in, in Proverbs as well. And especially if you want to look at the idea of wisdom. Uh, let's see, Proverbs chapter 8 especially uh, dealing with wisdom uh, and seeking after it and the fact that wisdom actually seeks us out. Uh, and so uh, uh, let's go ahead and, and get started with this this morning. Then uh, chapter 4, and we're going to do the whole chapter, the whole chapter this morning, all 16 verses. Uh, Solomon writes, again, I saw all the oppressions uh, that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. 
And I thought that the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that, that all toil uh, and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Side note there, it's really interesting. We'll look at it in a minute. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with the riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was, uh, uh, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he, referring to the youth, went from prison to the throne, youth, and <clears throat> though in his own kingdom he had been uh, born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. It can be very difficult to interpret some of this. Uh, and uh, bear with me and, and as I go through this this morning. And understand that if you've heard a different interpretation, that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily right or wrong. It just means that there's more than one way to look at some of this and, and put it together. Um, but the key, like I said, that, that I, I, I want to draw again from chapter 3 is that picture that, that God has put uh, in man's heart uh, a desire for eternity. And there's that other picture in, in, in chapter 3, verse 16, and is that uh, it says, dust to dust. When man dies, he, he returns to dust. He's made from the dust, he returns to the dust. Those are important concepts because... Again, that idea of everything that we accumulate in the, in the world isn't going to go with us into eternity. And don't forget that he has already stated that he's put eternity in our heart. So as we look at these other things, uh, there is something better than what we are looking at under the sun here. And we'll, and we'll see how to relate to that in a minute. There's several sections to this. I just want to look at verses one through three to start with, and again, looking at the uh, reading them again, it says, "I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, all the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, 
And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Again, I saw. So what he's referring back to is, is going back to chapter 3 and the things. Other, I saw, I've been telling you, I've been seeing these things. Again, here's something else I have seen. Again, I saw. And now he's, he's uh, observing what is done under the sun, and he's looking at his focus here in these verses, is that he's looking at those who are oppressed. He sees great oppression. He sees the tears of the oppressed, which implies pain and suffering. And it says there's no one to comfort them. In the framework of the world as a whole, there are those who are oppressed and there are the oppressors. We in the United States, generally speaking, are a unique people in the world. There are a few other nations that have some of the basic freedoms that we have. But generally speaking, things are generally built around the ones who hold the power. And so, and, and, and they are the oppressors. And, so, and there's no one to come along in comfort. So what do you have? You have people moving around all the time, refugees from one country to another, and then all of a sudden you find them going back because they're not wanted in that country. They don't know where to go to be safe. They're, 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 they're living from day to day and sometimes hour to hour. And there's great persecution. There's great uh, tribulation for them as uh, their families are separated. Uh, there's so many things going on. And this is what and he's looking out at the world and he's saying, there's such oppression. And we see it today. All we have to do is watch the news. And I don't care what your, your affiliation of, of news channels that you like to watch, they all talk about the fact that there are things that are going on in the world where people are being oppressed. They're being persecuted. Uh, and, and in some countries... Persecuted unto death. It's called genocide. And, and we're, we're amazed that this can happen. And again, it comes back to there's no one that's coming along to comfort them. And even when someone does come along to try to comfort them, a lot of times they enter into being part of the, those who are persecuted. Uh, I think of the number of, of, of Christian missions that are in outreach to various areas where there is uh, monarchies that are in charge, they hold the power, and the, the, they are persecuting parts of their country, even to the point of genocide. We see Christian missions coming in, trying to help, feed, relocate if they can. And sometimes the missionaries are arrested and thrown into prison and even murdered. And so we see this picture that, that he draws is something that's still with us today. There's great oppression and no one to comfort them. He says they're better off dead or never born. For the oppressor, the power is on his side. For the oppressed, no one is on their side. No one to comfort them. This is what he sees. As a result of the misery of oppression, the preacher comes to the conclusion that it's better not to be alive than to be alive and to be so oppressed. He basically sets up a, a, a picture here. 
those who are never born are better off than those who have now died who are better off than the living today in the time that he's writing. So it's a graphically depressing statement to say it would be better that I had what? Never been born. Now, there are people who have experienced, and even people that I know who have gone through great tragedies in their lives, uh, great persecution in their families in the sense of, of, of abuse and stuff like that, and they get to the mental state where they do, they do say, I wish I'd never been born. Most of the time, it's a statement of, of just generality. It would have been better I'd never been born than to go through all of this. Sometimes they're sincere. Sometimes they're so sincere that they even contemplate suicide. Better to be dead than facing the persecution or the abuse. This is a a problem that's with us today. Why is this problem here? Why do we keep coming across it? When, you know, we've had, I don't know how many times that countries have gotten together uh, and and tried to set up an organization that can minister to it and say, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Uh, and, And yet over and over and over again, we find ourselves with it happening again and again and again. And the reason is, Go back to, and BJ did this last week, go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. And man is corrupt. There's not a one of us in this room that is not corrupt. I'm glad, I hope that came out right. <laughs> And, and so we have this picture of, of, of the reality that, that even in some ways, in very subtle ways, maybe not in such demonstrative things that he's talking about here, but still for self-examination, which is Scripture were to do, is am I responsible for oppressing anybody? I need to, to examine my life, and that's what we're called to do. Put it before the throne of God and see if that is a possibility. You know, hopefully, you know, the most of us, I think we'd find, no, that's not something I do, but, but, but still, uh, we even have fleeting attitudes of, of animosity towards people because of the way they dress or, or the color of their skin or because they took your parking place at, at, at Safeway. Um, and they did it by turning the wrong way and coming in at the other angle right in front of you when you had your blinker going for that spot. Oh, I'm showing you my animosity, aren't I? And and so, you know, we we realize that, you know, even our attitudes and the way we think, Jesus says our thoughts are as guilty as our actions. Uh, I grew up in a in a family that uh, uh, was anti-Hispanic. Uh, and the irony was that we lived in a neighborhood that uh, you, you have to understand the logistics of Santa Barbara, California. Uh, Santa Barbara, California, this guy came up from, from Thousand Oaks in, in that area who great, great huge uh, housing developments and did a big, huge housing development. By the way, the development was awesome. 
all the houses had views of the ocean and, and, and stuff like this. But they were track homes, flip-flop, four, four different patterns. People in Santa Barbara wouldn't buy them. Nobody's going to live in a track home. So people getting out of the service at that time uh, and with their bonuses and, and different things were, were buying them and this type of thing. And, and also, they, the, the price kept coming down and down and down. And the next thing you know, a lot of, uh, of, of minorities as well were able to get into this housing. And, and you, you know, it became actually an identity zone as, you know, that's where the, the, the Hispanic people or, or the, the people of color live. And uh, I can remember my family from that point on trying to figure a way to get out of that area because they didn't want to be identified as being in that neighborhood. And uh, so, you know, there's all different kinds of, 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 of oppression and there's all sorts of different ways of, of doing it and, and being a part of it without even thinking about it. I've heard some, some oppressions uh, even online and in, in Facebook and different places where uh, if you're with one particular party, you're anathema. Or if you're another particular political party, you're anathema. How could you be that? It's the same thing again. We have this attitude of, of, of self-righteousness. Better than... All of that is tied into this picture. But I want you to understand, these kinds of attitudes are under the sun. They're not of heaven. They're under the sun. They're of the world. And we are told to examine ourselves, to look at, at, at it, and, and to be aware of it. In verses 4 through 6, he goes on. Then I saw that all the toil of, uh, and all the skill and all the work that came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And, but better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. What he's saying here basically is, is the reason why people really get into this, this circle of of life where they work harder and harder and, and, and try to get more and more is because they envy the person that has a little bit more than they have. I want what they have. We know that's true. We know that, you know, uh, in the same framework of, of, of advertising, that's what they're pitching. You know, these new cars, if you have one of these, you will be happy because you have something that is brought you up in status. And, and, and the idea is envy. You notice the word envy here. It's the context of keeping up with the Joneses. It's a literal picture. I, oh, I'm striving to keep up with the Joneses. I, I got, if they've got something new, I need something new. So I can be happy too. And isn't it interesting that the advertising industry plays off of that? They know the, the psychology of this. They know it's true. They know it's real. If I only had, I would be happy. And yet, once we have it, we might have a few days, a few weeks of general happiness, and then we'll see that the Joneses got something else new. And I want one of those too. There's a lot of me in this. 
What is it? I have eye trouble, me, myself, and I trouble. I envy. I want what he has or they have. Keeping up with the Joneses. I can't get it. Verse 5 is, is a picture that's implied. I can't get it I'm, or I've given up trying to get it or I'm just not participating in that realm. I, I just don't want to do that. I, I just want to sit back and, and not get involved in any of that. By the way, that was really big in the 60s and 70s. I don't know how many of you knew either participated in or knew of people or friends that were in the communes and different things. The idea was to kick back. and not. But what he looks at it here is, is the person who decides not to toil, not to work, not to participate. He's a fool. And he just folds his arm and he ends up devouring himself, meaning he, he uses up all his resources and has nothing and has to depend on something else in order to survive. And yes, even in the time of, of, of ancient Israel, they had welfare means. There were things that they did that, that allowed to, to minister to people. And, and so he, he points it out. He says, then there's those people, there's this people that toil and toil and toil. They can't get enough. They have to have it. And when they get it, they're not happy. They have to get more. And then there's the other person who just sits back and says, feed me. And they devour themselves, their, their, their self-worth. All of it is, is what is implied. They just, they just lose everything. Now, verse 6 is separate in the sense that this is what would be the ideal between those two. Better is a handful of quietness. The idea of quietness here is calmness, not frantic, not overzealous to try to achieve or get something quietness doesn't mean that you're you're you're, you've given up or anything like that but that you 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 can have a moment of rest and not feel guilty (laughs) better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil the guy in 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 chapter four is 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 the one with two handfuls of, of toil he just can't get enough so this person is better as a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Instead of going out and chasing the wind and never being happy, in other words, I can't really grab it and get a hold of it and be satisfied. I can be content with what I have. By the way, this is a, a, a ray of light in the midst of all of this that is the idea of God's provision. Remember in the chapters 1, 2, and 3, uh, we've, we've established God is sovereign. He provides. Are we, can we be content with what God has provided? And so uh, we, we, we have this picture. Uh, content with what God has provided you is, is the person in, in verse 6. I, I grabbed a little chart that I copied down here uh, off of one... Uh, person that had done some writing notes on this. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. It is foolish to drop out of any competitive endeavor. In other words, the idea is it's not wrong to compete. It's not wrong to get out there and to work. It's, not, it's wrong to, to not do that. In fact, God ordains and blesses, and work is a gift, again, according to the first three chapters, from God. The other side of that was one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. 
is equally foolish to be so competitive that you never enjoy what you have. You never enjoy the rest. Verses 7 and 8. Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, striving for the wisp of smoke under the sun on the earth, in the world. One person who has no other, uh, no other, either son or brother, yet here, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and, de- and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also is vanity and an unhappy business. What he's basically talking about is, here's a person who is so caught up with work that he is alone. He has no time for anything else. And... There's is different people as they write this, they look at it and they say in our culture today, there are numbers of people who live in, 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 in families and groups who are all alone <laughs> because they, they, they don't have a relationship with anything but their work. The typical term is workaholic. Uh, I, I've got to do this to get more. And, and so, uh, and, and, and please, don't overread into this as I, as I talk about it because there are times and seasons in our lives where we have to put in that kind of work in order to just survive. I think of, uh, of people that, 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 that worked, uh, especially going back into the times of the Depression and various other areas that were economically down where people had to have you know, two jobs and the different things to, to, to take care of things. But, but the general picture here is what we're looking at are the people that are obsessed with the, the toil. The purpose of the toil is to gather. And, and especially in this picture, here's the guy that's going to gather. And you have to understand the Hebrew culture here at this point in time. How important a heritage and a legacy, leaving something behind you for your family, was. And so, you know, to accumulate in, in some ways was, uh, was a part of what you did for the sake of, of, of your family and, and a blessing to them. But in this case, he has no one. He is so busy that he doesn't have time, and this is the implication, he doesn't have time for a relationship. Uh, uh, And he's never satisfied with what he uh, accumulates. Now I want to skip verses 9 through 12 for a moment and drop down to verses 13 and 16. 13 through 16, excuse me. Uh, Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Poor but wise youth compared to an old foolish king who no longer will take advice. By the way, anybody who won't take advice or listen to advice is considered not wise. 
Okay, a wise man welcomes advice. He might not take it always, but he welcomes it, especially if it's something that can improve his position and, and, and ability. So he's got the old foolish king, and, and this youth comes along, and, and uh, he listens to others, and he takes good advice. Uh, and the old foolish king, the implication with the word old, especially tied to this, is that he is feeble-minded or extremely stubborn as well. And so this youth, with his attitude of, of listening and being, uh, you know, and, and having that term wise, understands the ways of the world uh, and, and listens to others and takes good advice, he becomes a popular figure. And even though he's been to prison, he makes his way to the throne. The people follow him. And they elevate him. And some people will say, well, that can't happen. Ask Joseph in the Old Testament if that can't happen. Go from prison to the throne. Took him for, you know, and even though he started out poor, uh, he ends up on the throne. He stands in the king's place. And look at the following he has. It says there's no end to all the people. In other words, multitudes are following him. This, this person has won over the people. He is the people's choice at, in a context of landslide. They, they have followed after him. They no longer want anything to do with the king. In fact, we don't know what happens to the old king, but the, this guy gets raised up to a position of, the, of, of being in the, standing in the king's place in the, on, at the throne. And so with all of this people following after him, He said he comes from prison, and he is admired as he rises to the kingship. Uh, the old foolish king, he came from the, the, the throne room and doesn't appear to be admired by anyone anymore. So you can see this, this picture. This person is taking the place of this one. He's being elevated by the people. They're following after him. A contributor to the notes on Ecclesiastes put, this, put it this way. The preacher said in Ecclesiastes 4.13-16, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, <clears throat> though in his own kingdom he had been uh, born poor. I saw all the living who, who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after wind. So there is a paraphrasing of it. This rags to riches story is about someone who rose from obscurity to royalty. It's not exactly clear who the preacher had in mind when he told this story at the end of chapter 4. The story is a little hard to decipher. But it seems that the, uh, the, the king who ruled before uh, excuse me, uh, a little hard to decipher, but it seems that the preacher told the story of a young man who rose to power unexpectedly, taking the place of the king who ruled before him. Though the young man had been born in relative poverty, he rose to the highest office of the land. This new king ruled over a vast kingdom. There seemed to be no end to the people who followed him. Yet even the new king could not rule forever. Eventually, he also passed away, 
And others followed him, and the young king was finally forgotten. In other words, even if you're successful in all your ventures and you stand at the front of all the people and you have their ear for, and, and, and that you have their following you and, and they're listening to you and, and, and you're at the, the pinnacle, still what's going to happen? You will die. And all of that value of that is behind you. <laughs> you can't, again, that picture, you can't take it with you. No U-Haul trailers allowed. Okay? This, this person said, Let me say briefly that one lesson we should note is that fame is fleeting. The preacher wants us to understand that no matter how popular a leader is, the day will come when someone else will succeed him and his fame will fade away. We are reminded not to put too much stock in earthly position. You know, all this time up to now, we've been talking about earthly possessions. He says, earthly position as well. Let's go back to verses 9 through 12. In the midst of this, there's a big shot of, of, of sunshine here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two uh, lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one. Period. In other words... Having a, a friend and a person who is looking out for your back and you're looking after his. And I, and I was, because I, I, I had been looking at this over the last couple of weeks, uh, we, we were watching one of these Alaska adventure wilderness things. And here's this one guy all by himself doing all these things. And I'm thinking, he's got a chainsaw going, he's got an axe going, he's got a four-wheeler going up things like this and flipping it and landing and crazy. And I'm thinking... That guy breaks his leg, you know, if he, of course, he's not really alone. Obviously, there's a cameraman and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, is that if, it, if this was the reality of the, his choice of lifestyle, he could be in serious trouble very quick. Okay, so, you know, I, I, I look at the, the fact that two together, we're told, basically, I recall, we're never to go hunting one alone. We're never to do this alone. We're never, you know, certain things. You always have two together. And that's this picture. Two together are better than one. There's a sense, uh, if you will, he says, that first off, there's good results in labor. Your labor return is better, which is a, a picture of synergy. In other words, one alone produces this much. Two together produce this much. And it's more than double. You know, so it's, it's an idea of, of, of it, it's, it's a, a good thing. Uh, the key, uh, obviously, uh, to this also was pick up one another in times of trouble. So they got each other's back. So I, I put synergy under 4.9 and support under 4.10. And under 4.11 and 4.12, I put survival and security. You have each other's back. Warm when it's cold. Hold up one another in adversity. Uh, okay. Now, he goes to the, uh, 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 another position here in verse 12. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
Now, the simple picture here, and I do believe that, there, that you, you need to see it this way first, if two is better than one, then three, that was six, <laughs> three is better than two. I guess six would be better too. Uh, three is better than two. And, and I think that's the, the first application, the general application. But you know, the first time I ever heard a, 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 the, the picture of, of, of a threefold cord is not quickly broken was in a wedding ceremony. First time I ever heard it. I wasn't even a believer at the time. And the idea is a spiritual picture. The wife, the husband, and Christ as the core cord, and they're woven around it, that has got the strength. And I don't think that that's not, I think that's implied here as well in the sense of spiritual application. And a number of writers going back to Spurgeon and others did see uh, spiritual application in this. The indwelling Holy Spirit the, the, is, is, a, is that, that extra, that third person. If God has put eternal life in you, 3.11, then Christ is necessary to be in the picture for it to come to fruition. And God's plan is necessary. God's sovereignty is to be rested in. He's got it figured out. There's a promise that Matthew, Jesus made in Matthew 8.20. He says, For where two or three are gathered together in My name, there am I among them. Imi is the I am here. So it's actually not am I among them. It's I am among them. And almost any time you see I am and Christ in the same context, we're going clear back to, to Exodus What's your name? I am that I am. This is to be the one that brings us together. And He is to be the core cord, if you will. So within the framework of our congregation this morning that we're all here, everyone that has a faith in Jesus Christ who's confessed with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, raised from the dead, and, and you've accepted that as your, as your faith, He is to be the cord that enters into all of our relationships that holds us together. So when we look for uh, direction, when we look for, for ways to understand uh, what we are to do, we don't look to the world and the world's ways of doing things, where do we start? We start with the Word of God. By the way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is a reflection of who Jesus Christ is. And so and that's Old and New Testament, folks. This is it, it, Peter makes it really clear when he says it's God-breathed. And so as we look at this, this becomes the thing that, that we look to to see how this really comes together, how the cord is intertwined and works, and where the strength to hold that together comes from. It comes from Jesus Christ. You realize how many Christians have faced 
un, what would be insurmountable persecution and, 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 and different issues in the, in, in the history of, of, of the world and came through it unscathed spiritually. Somebody says, well, yeah, but they died in the arenas or they died on crosses. Yeah, but we all die. But God has put in your heart, in your heart, eternity. And there is only one way to successfully fill that void. And that's with Jesus Christ. So it starts with our, our relationship with, with, with God. He becomes the thing that we entwines us and, and, and hangs on to. We even sung some songs this morning that implied that same picture. And, and, and we realize that as we fellowship with one another and we minister to one another, we do so with the idea that we are a multifaceted cord with Christ at its core. How did that come about? Well, we already mentioned Genesis chapter 3 says we, we fell with sin. We decided to do our own thing. And we were separated. And what's the, what's the penalty of sin? Death. Physical and spiritual. God says He so loved the world that He gave His only Son to defeat that. Physically and spiritually, by the way. We'll all physically die once, but it's to be resurrected new. So we have, death has been conquered. Death, where is your sting? It's gone. The sting of death is, is, is no longer there for the believer. That doesn't mean the pain and suffering. Man, you start thinking about ways to die if you want to get morbid about it. And, 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 and for the moment, I can think of a lot of ways. I do not want to be dying. Uh, eaten by a tiger would be at the top of my list. Uh, you know, um, so, you know, I, I, I look at this and, and, and realize, but that's still only going to be for a moment. What really counts is what he put into my heart, the idea of desiring eternity. And then giving me a means to get there. Confess Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, son of God, raised from the dead, defeating sin. So as we go into communion, that's what we celebrate. Communion is a time of reflection. Don't misunderstand. I, I often get so set aside by, by the awesomeness of the celebration that communion represents because of what Christ did through it. But it's a time of self-evaluation, self-reflection, asking God to open your mind and your heart to things that are outside of where you should be with Him. And, and then as we, we do that, though, also keeping in mind that it is a celebration in the sense that, that it represents what He has done for us. This does not represent a dead Christ. It represents a living Christ. And so, that's the hope that God has given us. That's what erased the sting of death. So it's a, and, and what's even greater is, is, is Jesus' promise that we will share this again. He, says, he said at the Last Supper, He says, I won't, I won't drink of the cup again until we are together. And I believe that He's talking about the marriage feast. And we'll, what a day that will be. 
Do we have eternity planted in us? He's given a, des- a, a desire to fill that void. Man has chosen as a whole to be under the sun, S-U-N, and instead of under the sun, S-O-N. And as a result, uh, not filling that void with, but with stuff. And it's all grasping at the wind when it's all said and done. What its value is, is worthless compared to the value of Jesus Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you. It's the only thing that counts when it's all said and done. And the day of our death is there. It's going to be what you did with Jesus Christ that counts. Isn't that a, an amazing thing with all the stuff that we have? And just in this congregation alone, the homes, the cars, the TVs, the, uh, the resources that we have, the only thing that really counts is what we each have done with Jesus Christ. And that's what this is counting on. And that's what it's dealing with. That's what it's really looking to. So I'd ask the uh, ushers to uh, come and to pass out the communion. Hold it until we've all been served. We'll share it together. Uh, I ask the worship team to return. And uh, we'll sing our communion song and then share communion.